When you travel all the way to the Mediterranean, you're going to have the chance in a lifetime to be just wowed by the antiquities, the wonders of the ancient world. But it takes some skills. It takes some ability to really appreciate what you're looking at. We're joined by Anastasia Gaetanu, who's a guide in Greece from Thessaloniki, and Colin Clement, who's a guide who resides in Alexandria in Egypt. And we're going to talk about sightseeing skills for the ancient world. Colin, Anastasia, thanks for joining us. It's Thank nice you. To be here. You take travelers around the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, what would be a very important skill to have as a prerequisite for understanding and depreciating some ancient sites? Anastasia? I believe it's very important to forget what you know about today's world. You can't compare different things. We have a different sense of morality. We have different habits. We live in a different world. And also, our, our eyes full of images because we go to the movies, we see television. So we don't many times appreciate what an effect something that we think is normal or common had on someone in ancient times. So if we leave all that prejudice behind, then we can definitely comprehend more and better. It's a good point. I think it's also important to remember that you know, the people of the past are exactly the same as us in terms of mental capacity. Mm -hmm. We're not, you know, we're not talking about sort of sloping, browed, grunty people. You know, if somehow you could sort of Star Trek-wise beam somebody out of the third century before Christ into our era they and send them to school, they'd just turn out like us. So you, when you stand back and look at all that engineering, which is, you know, all these massive monuments, think, how did they do that? Well, you know. Well, they just got out a piece of papyrus and figured it out. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they knew mathematics. Mm -hmm. Let's talk mm -hmm. about the technological marvels, because this really is really impressive. When you think of acoustics, they understood acoustics. Absolutely. I mean, you go to, to Epidavros, for example, in, in the Peloponnese, the acoustics of that theater, which was built in the third century before Christ, and the acoustics there are still absolutely excellent to the extent that... In fact, they do concerts now without, without amplification. Absolutely, still use it, yeah. Anastasia, what, what sort of technological marvels impress you when you go to one of the wonders of ancient Greece? It is true that you don't see much of that anymore, although that theater is a living example. And we do now know exactly how they thought of it, how they designed it. We know why the acoustics are so good. But what I find very interesting is that this particular marvel impressed people in ancient times as well. So they would travel far and wide and they would get to the theater and they would go... Hey, good acoustics. Not just good acoustics, great acoustics. Great acoustics. Let's go to Epidavros, yeah. I've stood right there in the center, friends, you can do whatever you want, and you feel like, man, you can project to the, to, I don't know how many people would be in the theater, how many people would be in Epidavros? 12,000. 12,000 people. The people who are commissioning these monuments in the past were perhaps doing it with the same, for the same reason that people today commission skyscrapers or huge concert halls. I mean, they're, they're works projects which were going to employ, you know, keep the economy taken over, and they're status symbols. They just are, like today, really. Just like today. You know, the culture is expressing its ambitions through its own constructions. That's a very important mindset thing, as Anastasia was saying, to remember these people have never seen a moving image. They've never seen a photograph. Uh, and then just to have a simple carved relief would be something you'd tell your children about. Well, one of Definitely. the earliest, one of the earliest symbols or the earliest icons or images of the lighthouse of Alexandria, which is one of the wonders of the, of the ancient world, was a glass jar that was found just outside of what is now modern Kabul in Afghanistan. It no longer exists. It's unfortunately been destroyed in all the turmoil that Afghanistan's experienced. That, but it was a tourist trinket just to see this that someone took home to say to their family, you know, see what I saw when I went to Alexandria. And I find also very interesting that sometimes today, because we're so 
based and, and dependent on our technology and what we can do is we can't understand how these people manage to, to build all these great constructions. But I think it's very interesting to see how people, for example, in the 5th century BC, could not understand how their ancestors in the 8th century or in the 2nd millennium BC did what they did. Of course, the explanation back then was a lot more easier. You know, giants with one eye, the Cyclops came and did it. I but love that. And you're thinking specifically about the palace in Mycenae. For example, And the yes. people would call that uh, Cyclopean architecture, just yes. because they couldn't imagine some man carrying those big stones. Exactly. So when you go to Mycenae, you can, I just always think, wow, Mycenaeans were a thousand years before Socrates and Plato. And they would yes. go down there and they would see the remains of this palace and they would see those huge stones actually, I guess, bigger than what the Greeks were using, and they just shook their head and thought, no human being could do this. Yes, because they did not have the technical, technological means that they had, so they could not understand or comprehend how would someone, without having this crane that they had in the 5th century BC, could pull something like that off a thousand years before that. So they attributed to giants. Exactly. Imagine looking at the pyramids in the ancient days. Well, I imagine looking at the pyramids today, I mean, there are still people who insist that the pyramids were built by aliens or outer space or whatever. But the, the term is pyramidiate. A pyramidiate, a person who refuses to person, believe yeah. humans did this. Yeah, yeah. And then you would respect the fact that they were just as smart as us. They may not have had computers, but they figured it out. They figured it out one way or another. We're still not sure exactly how they did do it, but nonetheless they did but do they it. they did it. Yeah. You know, when you, when you are trying to understand all of this, it's also very important to get into that, that mind frame and understand the mystery of the world. People didn't know what thunder and lightning was. They didn't know why the sun rose every day, and they would explain it with their various religions. And then to understand the art and the architecture, you really need to understand the religions. Well, you need to, to a certain extent, understand the religions because they would use, perhaps, myth and religion to explain natural phenomena, of which we now have, perhaps, better scientific explanations. But it didn't mean to say they were sort of cowering and terrified of it all. They Mm -hmm. would rationalize it in the same way we rationalize all sorts of things we don't necessarily understand ourselves. But they were still quite capable. Certainly the ancient Egyptians were obviously very capable of serious, rational, scientific thought. Otherwise, they would not have been able to build the things they built, nor manage the land the way they managed it. Well, speaking of rational thought, what about sex? I mean, that must have been a mystery to them. <laughs> not an awful lot of <laughs> rational thought when it comes to sex, actually. <laughs> and, but said. I mean, when you think of this art, it's all fertility symbols and stuff, and there's so much fertility woven into it. In Greece, you think of the cycladic yes. fertility symbols and so on. Well, fertility symbols. It is true that um, most of the fertility symbols were genitals. That's right. true. Uh, nowadays, maybe that would uh, insult our moral feeling, but... Um, Back in the old days, well, of course, they did not go around naked. Like many times we see the uh, statues in the museums like of naked men, and then people think, oh, God, they did not have anything to put on. Of course they did, but there were naked athletic competitions, and they did train naked, the naked body of a man, not of a woman. But that was something common. So it was nothing really um, hidden or unknown or dirty or, or, dirty or nothing. And besides, how can you get children if you don't have genitals. I mean, it's and how do, you, how do you survive if you don't procreate? And mm. if they want to be fertile, maybe they need to worship something to increase their fertility. I think the very earliest statues are fertility statues. Fertility statues. That's true. Well, it's also a question is how, how were these worshipped as well? I mean, I think, I don't know if people necessarily 
understand how these fertility symbols would be used. I mean, our notions of worship are, are veneration and, and complete belief in, because that's how our religion has evolved. We, you know, we believe completely in, for example, Christ, if, you know, if we were a Christian, or we believe completely in the teachings of Allah if you were a Muslim. But did these people actually look at those little clay fertility symbols and believe completely that they were the source? Or were they symbols? Were they like perhaps icons in the Orthodox Church? And they would accept them and gather them. And yeah, they were, they were means a, of contemplation. Now in Egypt, where you're from, I understand nearly all the art we look at today is funerary art. Yes, mostly it's within a funerary context, but there are you know, straightforward decorative art as well. But, but help me get this straight. You've got the Nile that sort of cut the world in a north and south sort of halves, and uh, the sun would rise on one side and set on the, the other. other side. Is yeah. it fair to say most of the ancient art you'd see from Egypt would be on the side is, where it's, the sun it's sets? All, it's, uh, yeah, it's all on, on the Western Bank, yeah, specifically in the, the concentrations of the old capitals, absolutely. Yeah. And that would be because symbolically where the sun sets, you'd bury your... That's your where the sun goes down, yeah, yeah. So these are examples of how you can get a sort of an appreciation of the mindset of people to understand the sightseeing you'll be seeing today. When we travel through the ancient world, you've got to prioritize, and we just hear so many superlatives, and you've got to see this site and that site. Anastasia, when somebody is in Greece, in, in Athens, and going on the Peloponnesian Peninsula or out to the islands, how do you prioritize on your sightseeing so you don't go crazy and try to see too much? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, you definitely have to see the sightseeing, what is mainly known. But I try to see the big sanctuaries of ancient times because they were the place where people would socialize. This was the place where you could come closer to a god. This was the place also for the athletic competitions. It was the place where everybody would meet. So it was the um, core of living and the, the core of their religions. And there were four major sites. One was Delphi. Delphi, or the Delphi, Oracle. The Oracle. Second one was Olympia. Okay, where the this, first Olympic Games. Where the first Olympic Games took place. And the last ones in antiquity. And all of them, apart from one. Right. And then there are two more which are not that known. The one is Nemea, where it was a sanctuary dedicated to Hercules because that's the place where he had his first task. And he killed the lion of Nemea. Where is Nemea? Nemea is in the northeast of Peloponnese, not very far from Corinth. Okay. It's between Corinth and Mycenae. Is there much to see there, actually? Yes, it's quite interesting. There is a beautiful museum where you can see both about everyday life and also about the athletic competitions. Almost a bit more than the half of the stadium is still intact, and you can see it very well, the start line. You can see also the ancient baths there. And uh, there is the American school, archaeological school, digging there and restoring. And now you can see a lot of the columns of the temple restored. And the fourth is Isthmia. That's also not very far from there. And that was a sanctuary dedicated to Poseidon, who was the god of the sea. What is the name again? Isthmia. It's I-S-T-H-M-I-A. Okay. Colin, what would you add to that if you're prioritizing for sites? In Greece. In in Greece, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, Mycenae. I would go to see Mycenae because, you know, Mycenae ties in with Agamemnon and Menelaus, the Trojan War. I mean, it stretches sort of Greek history out of Greece and across the Aegean and up into the modern era because and, we and still just, read these stories. And so. there's so much to see there, and it is a thousand years before a lot of so, these yeah, other sites, yeah. so it is ancient, ancient. Yeah, it's, it's just two hours south of Athens, by the way, so absolutely, quite it's accessible. It's what close. else? Oh, I'd be tempted to go north, to go to Vergina, to go to Pella, to go to the, the royal sites of Alexander the Great, because if the knowledge of Greece came down to us in the modern era, it's because... 
he spread it outside of mainland Greece into the Hellenistic world from which it then traveled into the modern world. And I think I would add Epidavros for the great theater. Epidavros for the theater, perhaps. Of course, the Acropolis in Athens with the Acropolis Museum and Ephesus on the mainland of Turkey, but in ancient Greece. But that's more of a Roman site, isn't it? Well, it it stretches over. I mean, it's difficult to build walls between eras, frankly. History is a continuum. There's so many sites that are just really undervisited in the Holy Land. Go to Jarash as well, outside of modern Amman and Jordan. I mean, you've got a whole Roman city almost extant with colonnades running along the roads as if it had never fallen down. So if I was an ancient tourist, what would be uh, your advice to me, Colin? An ancient tourist? Yeah. Oh, well, clearly, in the, if you're in the common era, if you're in the second century AD, you would get a copy of Pausanias's Travels in Greece. What's his name? Pausanias. 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 P-A-U-S-A-N-I-A-S. He was a Greek who traveled around the ancient world in the second century AD and literally wrote it all up and drew pictures and created plans and all the rest of it. it and is, you can get a, a modern version of it that. It still exists. You can go into Borders or go on to Amazon and you can get Pausanias' travels. Anastasia, if you're going to take me to one, I know there's, it's a ridiculous question, but <laughs> take me to one place where I can really just go, wow, I'm so glad I traveled all the way to Greece to check this out. That's a very difficult question. That's true. But I would choose one site that maybe is not that known, and that would be in the north of Greece, and that would be Vergina. That's the modern name of the place. It is there where the first capital of the ancient Macedonian kingdom used to be. But in the 70s, the grave, or the tomb, better said, of Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, was found, and the most uh, important thing, unlooted. Unlooted, wow. And you can see the tomb today. It's not just one tomb. It was under um, a funerary hill. There were four graves there, two unlooted, uh, two looted. The second unlooted one most probably belonged to the son of Alexander the Great, Alexander IV. And where did all the treasures of that unlooted tomb end up? Where did they end up? That's the most interesting part of all. It's exactly there where it was found. So you can go in there. There is a building now protecting the whole thing, but you just enter the building, which simulates the ancient funerary hill, and also the entrance is made like the ancient entrances to those tombs. And you can go in and you can see the actual grave, not a replica, not a copy, it's the actual grave. And you can see also wonderfully done exhibition in front of those graves with all the artifacts that were found inside. What is the name of this site again? The name of the site is Vergina. It's a V-E-R-G-I-N-A. Vergina. And that's in northern Greece. That's in northern Greece. And it's a Macedonian royal tomb. Exactly. Wow, I'm putting that on my list. And as far as I know, that is worldwide the second richest unlooted tomb after the tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt so far. Colin, if you had one wish as a tourist today to get a sense of the grandeur of the ancient world, where would you take me? Oh, how ancient are we allowed to be, Rick? You can go as ancient as you like. I would take you to Egypt where I live, and I would take you down to Luxor. It's greatly visited, but it blows me away every time to walk into the hypostyle hall, the big columned hall of Karnak Temple just north of Luxor. Mm. It is just, uh, it's outstanding. It's almost inhuman. And it, it, is. It, it To be honest, it makes the Parthenon seem sort of small and insignificant and just a pile of rubble when you walk in there. It blows you away. It's a forest of huge sequoia-type columns, very close together, so you can almost not see the room. 
I think um, sort of indicating that they didn't have the sophistication architectural oh, speaking no, to, archi- yeah, to, to have a, a broad expanse above them. Yeah, I mean the lintels have to be close because they, they hadn't worked out anything else rather than, you know, than straight blocks on uprights. But you walk into there and you just go, my goodness, what century was that from? Oh, it goes back until what about at least the 17th century before. All right, so 1500 years but before the Acropolis. But it was active for a long, long time. So, Colin, that's a good reminder to me that we can go ancient to Greece and then we can go ancient again back to Egypt and all of it is within access to us travelers if we know where to go and, most importantly, to be prepared to understand the wonders of those civilizations. Colin Clement, Anastasia Gaitanu, thank you very much for helping us out. You're welcome. Thank Thank you. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com. <laughs>